Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello. Today, I chat with Gene M. Russell. And wow, Gene has this amazing stance towards participatory and cooperative ways of being that is incredibly helpful to listen to. And she's been doing it for, you know, like decades and just so just knows all of these little mimetic turns of phrase to say, hey, you're thinking from this competition way, let's instead think from this collaborative way. Or you're thinking from this like, you know, winner take all, but instead we can think of a participatory way. And so if you're interested in open source software or better social ecosystem design, I think there's a lot of juicy stuff in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy it and goodbye. Hello, fellow pluralists. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. This century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope that you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And to chat about that, I'm excited to chat today with Gene M. Russell. Gene is this really kind of curious, exciting social ecosystem designer, culture hacker, and facilitator that has been exploring this concept of thrivability um, for a while now, since 2007, writing a book on it, creating an online community, those kinds of things. So excited to have you on the show today, Gene, and welcome. Mm, Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, we're excited to dive in. And I think Gene is... Yeah, I mean, she's just a person who's been exploring this kind of like, there's some folks who explore like techno-utopian futures, <laughs> and Gene is exploring like still futures, but kind of connected more to the earth and connected more to how we as a whole ecosystem can thrive and stuff like that. And so I guess with that in mind, Gene, could you explain both for me and the listeners, like, what mm-hmm. is thrivability? <laughs> Of course, I get asked this all the time. Yeah. Um, and I prefer to be asked it live because everybody knows what it is themselves. And so I'd rather ask you, like, when I say thrivability, the ability to thrive, what comes alive in you? That's a good question. Um, I think what comes alive in me, for me personally, it is to have the, maybe both like the safety but also the autonomy to like um, explore the the things that I'm curious about and the connections that I want in the world. And then maybe for the whole ecosystem, I guess thrivability means for a kind of meta-stable um, uh, existence, long-term existence that is makes everybody as happy as, as possible. Everybody and all beings and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, I I cringe a little bit at the happy. Yeah. I wrote this blog post a long time ago where I was like, if you want to be happy, come visit me. Give me most of your stuff. I'll beat you for a couple of days. And then when I set you free and give you some of your stuff back, you will have an experience of happiness. <laughs> like It's so, so fleeting. Um, but satisfaction maybe mm-hmm. comes a little bit closer um, mm-hmm. to the feeling of being... Uh, feeling congruent in yourself and satisfied, enriched by the experiences that you're having. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also Mm -hmm. like that you pointed out to multiple levels in the ecosystem, right? It's not just you getting your glory. It's also what does that mean for your family, your community, the extended community, uh, the ecosystem, the planet, like all of those Mm -hmm. things are interacting at various layers. And so thrivability lies in the, the life that comes out of the collective as much mm. as it is in the individual. And 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 tell me more about the happiness versus satisfaction piece. Cause I think for humans it makes sense for like, okay, I do want to live like a life of clarity and satisfaction, not necessarily happy, just pure happy. But like, is there is there something about but I think when I think about from like um like a earth perspective or the um cows or whatever, like it's it's easier for me to like point at a cow and be like, that's a happier cow because it's not in factory farms. But like, it's tough for me to be like, that cow seems like it had a satisfying existence, like it lived a life of satisfaction. So how would you give like a positive valence term for Mm -hmm. what animals should experience or what Gaia should experience? Right, right. 
That's an excellent question. Um, so my my criticism of happiness comes out of Daniel Goleman's work, who defines you know happy is more of a a short term delighted state that we easily habituate to, hmm. um, where joy, awe, wonder, we know that they're not long term, and so we're okay. Like we expect them to be uh, short term. And so uh, is our cow delighted that he found a fresh patch of clover or that he didn't get stuck with a cattle prod or run through one of those cattle shoots, you know, like, uh, and I don't know about the inner life of the cow, um, but we can see the health indicators of like, oh, the fur is doing well. The, the cow is, um, is thriving, right? Whether it's, uh, the blood pressure or the length of life or the quality of its fingernails or, you know, it's uh, hooves or whatever, right? Like we can look for all these indicators of good health. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And so I guess there's like, you can like look backwards and be like, okay, the cow is doing okay. And the thing that you said with like uh, the, the Daniel Goldman or something, I'm not sure if I've, I've heard of that yet, but it's like, is it a, it's this idea of like happiness is like these short term, like dopamine hits versus like, uh, either delight or purpose or meaning, which are kind of like thing. It's a, tell me more about that distinction. Yeah. So um, he was one of the people that switched psychology from the negative aspects. Here's what disease looks like to what does the positive aspects look He's like? He's a positive psychology guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yes. Okay, great, great, yes. great. And so he does make a distinction between um, some subtypes of happiness uh, so there's the hedonic, you know, I had a delicious chocolate dessert. I'm having a ton of joy. But after three bites, you've habituated to how yummy it is. And so the hedonic is hard to stay satisfied in. Um, and then there's flow states. Of course, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work around flow states, right? Where you don't know that you're happy because any self-awareness kind of takes you out of the flow state. Um but you can look back and go, oh, I was in a state of joy because I was in flow. Uh, and then purpose-driven, which may not make you look very happy at all. You might have a very serious expression on your face, be very on purpose. But you get a form of satisfaction out of being on purpose. Um, and so that one doesn't habituate. The thing to be very careful for with the dopamine ones is the habituation. And then mm -hmm. what can you do to be an antidote to the habituation that we slip wow. into? Wow. Got it. That makes sense. I like each of those. It's yeah, it's the um just the hedonic habituation versus the flow state where you're um, you're just jamming versus the long term purpose and the feeling of satisfaction. I think that's just a helpful thing for as folks moved and as I move through my own life, it's like, okay, which things am I and just to be hyper aware of obviously the all the addictive kind of hedonic ones in the hedonic treadmill versus um, searching for the ones that like, f yeah, feel more long-term aligned or whatever. So, so tell me more about this, like, so thriveability and like, and, and so it's this, you know, I guess a, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you don't necessarily like, is there, and I was searching for this a little bit before the show. I was like, is there like a, is there like an Uber? Is there like a definition of it? Or do you think it's more of like an emergent thing that we kind of chat about with others and like, and then we move towards those like emergent, slightly positive futures? I'm a hugely participatory person. Mm -hmm. And that means that I don't corner the market on what does thriveability mean. I have some definitions that I can throw out and say, you know, life giving rise to more life. Um, some indicators like, does the life look like it's thriving? Is it crowding anything out? Is something else having to be sacrificed for it? I can ask some of those questions. But I think the, the real gift is that it's an inspirational word that makes you wonder what does thriveability look like in your context? And I don't have access to that context. And so you're going to be better at knowing what thriveability is in your context and, and how that's going to show up. Um, you see this, I think, a little bit with regeneration, that like when we're regenerating soil, what one soil needs is quite different than another soil in order to be fully healthy. Um, and so I think of thrivability that way too, that if we nail down the definition too much, we're going to end up in little semantic arguments about what's included and not and lose the spirit of let's move beyond sustainability. Nobody wants sustainable relationships and keeping a flat line is not what the world does. It's not what nature does. <laughs> what is it to really thrive? Yeah, I love it. I think there's, I mean, so many juicy things there. The first is 
yeah, we should sustainability is not the goal. Thriving or something adjacent to f- thriving, flourishing, whatever you want to call it, is the goal. Um, and then just you just made a lot of really crucial uh, verbal stanzas and cues there that I think are really amazing. The first is saying, "Hey, you say, hey, I'm a very I don't know if you said participatory person or something. It's like having I think a participatory stance on life is really." really important where you say, Hey, you know, and, and I, and I think then you kind of countered it versus these other lenses that are pretty, can be pretty negative of like, like the like, okay, life branding motor life is good, but what happens if it crowds out other things? You know, um, you have to ask that question. And I think, and maybe the, this is a good time to chat about, um, we kind of try to have this mindset. There's this like wisdom age piece that we wrote that I think we shared with you and that you may have read. Mm-hmm. I think, um, but I think in the tough part and that, that, you know, I kind of vibed with on that for a second is I think we kind of wanted to like point at this like more positive future that we should actually go towards but there's this balance of like we don't really want we obviously we can't own the word wisdom <laughs> and we don't want to own the word wisdom or a wisdom age or any of that stuff and so there was like there was this internal dialogue within the team which is like should we just say we're moving towards like a positive future or should we like actually call it something and use a more specific word um and i just think that there's something beautiful about the the again a reframe that you said there's like the gift that you're giving is just saying the word thriveability to the person and then having them create it and co-create it in their life. And so maybe tell me a little bit more about how, like if we, if like if Root, because Root's trying to also be this like, I don't know, like an org that might have for-profit and non-profit entities and blah, 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 and like actually, you know, growing and blah. How should we as an org not have a little bit more of that kind of participatory, not crowding out, emergent context-dependent mindset around building the wisdom age instead of like a we're we know make it everybody be wiser yeah okay i have a sideways way of coming at my answer to you and it's going to take me a minute uh so one of the projects that i was involved in was called ci to i global and ci to i stands for collective no co-creative innovation and impact institute uh no longer co-creative innovation and impact institute that's right Great. And also C I to I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we were a group of female facilitators who were working in social change spaces across the world, like Africa, uh, Asia, Australia, South America, like really across the world. Um, and very curious about what is co-creation and how do we co-create? And we did a little research project where we brought together a bunch of people who had successful co-creation projects. And we looked at what do we see that is our patterns in these projects. And one thing that we noticed was some projects co-create who, who is involved. And it's kind of an open question. It's not being dictated. Who is the opening? Some said, what, what we produce. We don't know what we're going to produce. These people are going to produce it, but we don't know what the output's going to be. And some people were like, how? We know what the how is. Um, or you don't know what the how is and you know who the who and the what is. But we noticed that none of the projects were unclear about one of these dimensions. And we realized that co-creation cannot happen about all these dimensions simultaneously. You have to have something to push against. So there has to be a fixed place of we know how we're going to go about this process, or we know what we're going to do, or we know who's going to do it, or two of the three. Um, so that's what I would say, be clear about, be clear about what you're actually going to stand in so that when you ask the question, that question is where people's focus is. And they're not like, well, how are we going to go about it? Or somebody else needs to be in the room. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So if I understand it correctly, it's like, well, Hey, that's like a cool, that sounds like a great group of folks who are thinking about this and like, yeah. And so you're saying that they were when they had this kind of opening, this like, hey, here's this participatory co-creative um, energy. Uh, it can't be at all three at once. And then for us to ask, okay, are we, what are we co-creating? Or, or do we have this open play space around who can come in and help with stuff? Or is it an open play space around like, hey, here's like, we're just like giving out grants to like, what's your building? So like go forth and like build stuff or like, or is it about the the, the how and maybe we have open source software and people can kind of, so yeah, is that, um, could you maybe give yeah. one other specific example of how to like break down the who, the one, the how there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I tend to be dictatorial about how. In most of my co-creative projects, I say, 
I am the benevolent dictator. I want to achieve this goal. I'm completely open to what content you're going to provide, but I'm going to gather ideas about thriveability itself. Um, and you can refer people, but it's going to be me choosing who are the people and this is how it's going to be put together. And then I just invite people to collaborate. So that's, that's mine. I'm the malevolent dictator. Um, and the what is the thing that's unsure, like the content of the Thrivability sketch, the first project I did in 2010. I had 60 some people contribute in three months to a book that we published online. Um, and so it was incredibly fast paced and we could manage that because the process was very clear. Yeah, because you owned the how, essentially. And you're like, look, I'm owning the how. Put in any and, – and you also, you know, made clear about the bell and the bat signal that you were ringing about the – um about kind of like the – um a little bit about like the why or like the macro topic or whatever. But then you were like, okay, but the who and the what, it can be anybody who comes in here and they can write about whatever they want. But like we're going to be writing in this form and we're going to be doing these things and you're, you can't give me a 20-page piece like we were co-creating yep. it here. So it's like – so you're a little yep. sub-essay. Okay, cool. I think yeah, that's helpful. 500 think, words or less. Exactly. Exactly. Um, great. That's a really helpful frame. Um, I, I guess I want to ask, I want to take this and go in a different direction with it too, which is I think an interesting like thing that I've kind of uh, osmosis from you based off of kind of just looking through your, some of your stuff again before this call was like, I don't know, you're, you're, um, you know, you have this, uh, as all osmosis happens, it happens through a tweet. And so I'm looking at this, um, a tweet, a recent tweet of yours that said like, Hey, like folks need to understand that's not actually what you said, but the, the key, the key piece that you say here are that Lord of Flies is not actually how humans work, just dark imaginings, and that cooperation is the rule. We focus on exceptions and risks. I think this is this like classic thing where folks think that evolution and evolutionary systems must be all about the struggle for survival. Um, but in fact, they can be about the snuggle for survival or whatever. Tell me more about how you view cooperation playing a role versus um competition playing a role yeah uh so that that little tweet was coming off of reading survival of the friendliest which i was of course reading because i already believed that friendliness was an important function um and that's a very sciencey kind of book you know evolutionary biology people um showing the science on it um but the thing with the Lord of the Flies, you know, it turns out that that guy was was a horrible person, the writer of that book, right? And so it's just like, oh, sometimes who the person is that says the thing is is what uh, what he's going to make a claim about. And the other thing is people miss the cooperation we're in all the time. Like go to the grocery store and notice all the times people cooperated. Like when you, when you switch your focus to, can I go to the grocery store, the restaurant, walk down the street, drive my car, how much cooperation am I getting from other people? People move out of the way so you don't bump into them. You know, it's, somebody's like, oh, no, you go ahead. You know, you reach for the same item. You have a lovely conversation. Like most of our life is this flow of cooperation with people around us. And it's the exception that we're like, that's so, that's so harsh. Um, and so much of our work is about teamwork. Like very few people produce anything by themselves. It's always about cooperating with other people. And in my work with companies, I find that who your cooperators are matters more than your competitor. So people always list like, here's my competitive field but they don't do a cooperative analysis. And it's actually your cooperators who are the partners that get you your first clients, that get you access to supply chain things, right? That find your funders for you, like your partners and who you cooperate with ends up building the business for you. Um, and so I think we need to keep that in mind and continuously remind ourselves to pay attention to how much cooperation is happening around us. And this cool. is not a, like just positive thinking kind of, oh, just think about how good it is. It's like, no, it's really happening there. And when you build on the things that are happening that are well, you get more of those things. And yeah, less no, I love that. I, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that that is an amazing, I think it makes sense of like, it's just, it's one of these classic things where we can put our focus on different things and you can kind of. If you see the world, well, so A, what you said about the Lord of the Flies person, like understanding who the person was and that, and, and being like, oh, 
this person, and I don't, I know nothing about them, but like, oh, they were kind of a person who's really into competition or whatever. That it, it makes me just, um, yeah. And then, and then that's just become obviously a meme within our culture. And so I wonder if there's like, is there an anti lord? Is there like, um, instead of a Lord of the Flies, is there another like small mimetic unit that we could use to share the other version of reality? I don't know. It lacks drama. It just. Mm-hmm. I went through a phase of wanting to write this book uh, that I was calling the triad because most stories are man against machine or man against nature or machine against nature. And I was like, what is it if these three are actually in alignment together? What if they're all growing each other? Oh, well, suddenly I feel like there's no drama. (laughs) There's no big conflict. It's like we're problem solvers without a problem to solve. And so I, I think that's part of why we find it difficult to find the the stories of cooperation. But you you know them when you see them. You come across little vignettes that just they make you cry because somebody contributed. Um, the one that was inspiring to me right lately that I read was um, uh, what was it called? Rebecca Solnit's Paradise Built in Hell. Mm. Just story after story of here's a catastrophic experience, a hurricane, a um, an earthquake, a war, and people helping. And it's like, oh, the, the elites are like, oh, it's going to be so bad. Mm-hmm. And actually in practice, people on the street are like, can I bring you a casserole with the few things that I have left in the fridge before they go bad, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. It just makes me think, yeah, <laughs> so much of this is like, thinking about what memetically what spreads memetically and that what you get with the covid story like the easier covid story is oh my god there's no toilet paper and, and every and you and you get some random video clip of two people like you know battling over the final bit of toilet paper um when in fact if you looked in aggregate at the amount of not what spreads memetically but what was happening i actually in real life you'd be like oh actually these people were nice and like they were helping each other and like mutual aid happened and all these things so i think that is um that is, we just need to somehow find a way and as a society, it just makes me think of, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, finding ways as a society to kind of push back against that, like, mimetic over-indexing, I think is one piece. I think another thing that you said there is, I love the idea of the triad, and it makes me think, those are, like, in man, nature, and machine, those are, you know, sometimes I'll call them, like, nature 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, like, 1.0 is nature, 2.0 is uh, humans, and then 3.0 is machines or whatever. And we want those things to be co-evolving in a positive way with each other, thriving in a positive way. Um, but yeah, that's not like a fun, there's no, um, no one's going to like, uh, that's not a Lord of the Flies style story. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think there's, if this is, I think this is an interesting, and I guess the other piece that it was making me think of a thread that I want to pull here, and I haven't actually read it much, but I was looking deeper into I guess like anarchism and anarcho syndicalism and dual power stuff, and then found you know Peter Piotr um, Kropotkin. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, and one of his original books about that, like essentially, we had like um, social Darwinism was a big thing that was happening at the time. Where it was like, sorry, this like like the white race is just better than the other races. Like, sorry, that's just like the evolutionary thing or whatever. Um, and Kropotkin was like, hey, actually. There's so much mutual aid that happened. He like and he started those ideas. So I don't know. Do you, have you read Kropotkin? By the I haven't. I I know nothing, very little about him. I I haven't, but the anarchists in my life have referenced it repeatedly. So <laughs> I I know I should be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess it's in, and I guess the mutual aid. He wrote a book in 1902. I'm looking up here. It's like, um, yeah. which is really cool. And so just like finding ways to, yeah. So I guess that what you're saying, and I think yeah. So do you think? What, when you imagine of, of reality of, I don't know, do you, do you find other ways that we as a people can like be better at, I don't know, seeing the, is it is it primarily is the first move just to see the cooperation in our life? Or like what are the other ways that we can kind of make a more cooperative lens of society? Yeah. Well, remember what I said about problem solving? Like we're problem solving creatures. And so using your wisdom to focus that problem solving brain on a problem at hand, like where is the real problem? Because otherwise it's just going to gnaw <laughs> looking for problems. Uh, and so being conscious about directing that problem solving mind towards things that you want to solve as problems um, allows it to, I, I have a saying that the ego is a dog and you better walk your dog rather than having it walk you. 
And it feels that way to me too about the problem solving brain, like take the problem solving brain out, give it a problem to solve, enjoy the glee that it gives from working on a problem, um, but don't allow it to take over in a way that it sees problems everywhere. I love that. I think, I mean, um, yeah, I think the ego, the ego as a dog makes me think of a meditation um, framing, which is we have the monkey mind and you mm -hmm. can't make the monkey mind. It's not the way to, to beat the monkey mind. is not to like shoot it behind the alley or whatever. It's like, it's to like say, Hey, monkey mind, you, I want to place you on something else. And what I'm going to place you on is my breath and the physical sensations of my breath. And so you can like go to town on that. But 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 that's where you're going to hang out right now instead of like going to town on like all the like anxieties and fears and all these things that you normally do. Um, so, yeah, I agree that it makes me think, too, about like finding ways to take politics, especially our current politics. And like we shouldn't it shouldn't be an allowed thing to have these kind of influencer debates about like gun control in America or whatever like that is that like that should just be a thing that is extremely done in like policy arenas blah blah and like if you want to do politics you can do some politics and you can like do weird influencer battles but like because those still need to happen in a way but like they can't we can't allow it to subsume quote-unquote important problems um yeah so okay i think that that is is that's i think i'm i'm getting a little bit of the cooperation and i guess one thing i want to hit on here though i think is really important is i think a frame that you said there that i think is important for other folks to recognize is that we want to be like you know, the in Dawkins and the Selfish Gene talks about the genes that survive are genes that succeed in the presence of other genes that also succeed in the presence of them. And so you want these like mutually co-reinforcing genes. Those are the ones that succeed. And similarly, you want these kind of like the things that succeed in society are the partnerships, are the cooperation, are these kind of like mutually co-reinforcing things. And so I think to kind of, as you said there, instead of like pointing at the bad and pointing at all the weird competition, instead just like, go doubling down on the good is is that right how, how how else do you see that well i have a few little uh problems with evolutionary stuff um coming out of a biology background too um the first one is we are some part of the evolutionary output and we are compassionate emotional creatures and so when we think about evolution, often people get dispassionate and are like, it's okay. It justifies the suffering, morally justifies the suffering because evolution. It's like, okay, but lichen, which is a really, really cool thing, exists because algae couldn't survive in that environment without fungus. And so because the environment was brutal, we developed this thing. Do we really want to keep perpetuating brutal conditions in order to drive some of these things. Because compassion is something that we have evolved to have. And so what does that enable us to build from here? Do we need to go back to fighting in the ways that bacteria fight or amoeba fight when, when we've gotten to this place of having compassion? How do we take advantage of what humans have developed through this line? And then I really like what you said about, oh, nature does a lot of stuff through co uh, cooperation. Um, one of the books that I was inspired by recently talked about horizontal gene transfer. And so now it's like not even your DNA is your DNA. Like first they were like, okay, mitochondria might not really be human DNA. And now they're like, your own DNA is bacterial, <laughs> right? Parts of your DNA are coming from other species, not just human species. This is an evolutionary advantage. And I think about, well, what can companies do that are like that? You know, like to me, things like open source is an, is an example of horizontal gene transfer in the corporate environment. Like let's pay to have this thing developed in the center that all of us get a benefit from instead of just being, well, I'm going to build it on my own and keep it hidden behind closed doors. Um, how can we do more of those things? And we've seen the benefits uh, over the last like 30, 50 years of what, approaching things that way can do. I love that. I think, yeah, I mean, both of those pieces are really juicy. I think there's just a lot. There's so many, um, there's so many, like the metaphor of, of taking biological entities and then mapping them into human stuff. It, sometimes it can go wrong and things, but I think often it can be extremely powerful. And so I think both of those, I think are, are powerful ways on that. The first one is interesting because like, 
okay, we are, because I think, yeah, any kind of replicator genes or memes are like a response to their environment. And so when the environment says, oh, this is like, the environment's really tough. And then the algae um, or the lichen need to go, oh my God, like, like let's make the algae and the fungus combine to make a lichen. Um, then it's like, okay, that was a response to a brutal environment. And what I'm hearing you say is that how can we create a better environment of compassion and and love and, and uh, wisdom and thriving and all those things such that the kind of uh, institutional structures that emerge and the group coordination and the way people act is kind of because they're in this like safe and trusted world, they can be more, they don't have to like need to like do these weird kind of intensities of, of, of cooperation or collaboration or competition. Instead, they can kind of be like um, loosely held by the environment or is, it, <laughs> is that what you're talking about? So yes, and like I'm trying to provide that there is an alternative. And as soon as there's an alternative, then we can ask the moral question. Is it morally better to create a brutal environment in which we get interesting outcomes like lichen? Or are we able to get such good outcomes from other contexts without having to be brutal? Mm-hmm. And then we can ask that in a moral way, like, oh, you're creating an artificially brutal environment of competition because you think it justifies the outcome. Here's mm. where we've done it without having to just without having to use brutal methods, and it undermines the the use of um, uh, that as a moral argument, right? That um, it's a frustration of mine. Yeah, I, I like. Well, that totally. I think that's a great. I love. I love to like. Here's where I'm frustrated, people. Um, that's a, that's a, is what I mean. <laughs> ah, you're like, you want to like choke the random person over here. That's like, hey, competition. Like, and I, what I'm hearing from you is like, here's this random competition person who's just like, look, which is like, we got to have competition because like, well, look what we get out. We get this amazing thing on the out, uh, on the other side of it, which is really cheap goods or whatever. And you're like, yes, but is that, do the ends justify the means? And, um, and, and, and I think showing, these, I think in the, yes, but I guess the specific question I have for you is, is there, so, so I guess what you're saying is this is in some ways about um, hitting the competition people and saying like, look, I know that you like, you're using competition as a way to, um, you're saying the brutal conditions are the, are like the way through and to make the like interesting things in the world. Is there a, can you give me an example of like, I guess I'm still a little bit confused, like what kind of environment you would is is like a less brutal environment and is instead an environment that is um more positive what does that look like for humans oh i wanted to go to the animal environment because one of the arguments i use around this evolution stuff is how did we get snails butterflies and three-toed sloths (laughs) like the three-toed sloth like how is that the the strongest thing in the environment right it's fit it fits in its environment because its environment is not brutal and so mm-hmm. it can move quite slowly and hang around and get enough food and it's fine. Right? Yes. Actually, I love keep I love keeping on the environmental train for a second because I was thinking that I was thinking like, but don't then we just get these like random like quote unquote lazy animals or whatever, and like sloth is the perfect example, maybe. But I guess that's interesting. So then so yeah, sloths and butter like I guess butter how do we get butterflies? What how do butterflies emerge? Do you I I don't know. Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, butterflies is, has a painful process. It completely liquefies itself, <laughs> right? Like that that seems a little brutal too. But but my point just being that people often, they call to nature in order to justify their behavior. Yeah. And, and when they call it, they're like, well, lions are clearly the best. And it's like, n- no, the wild world does not see it that way. Mm-hmm. The wild world mixes it all up and needs the ecosystem to be. And so like all the new books coming out about the power of fungus, fascinating, right? Like the internet of the wild world. Yeah. Is there a book? I was just doing kind of a deep, the only reason why I even knew what you were talking about with lichen being a combination of algae and fungus is because I did a slight like wiki dive on, on fungus recently. Is there a book on, if I'm trying to understand fungus better and mycelia but networks better what's, what's one do you recommend yes oh. it came out in the last two years it's a guy who grew some mushroom on the book itself after he published it it's fascinating i can't remember the title right now 
Yeah, entangled life. We are. Yes. It, okay, yes. great, 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 great. Um, okay, great. That's uh, that's the one. The I'll, I'll I'll check that out. Um, tell me about so, but and then when you kind of. I guess when you think, so I do think having these um, metaphors in our minds of like good, and I think about something maybe like the Galapagos or something where like, oh, here's these like turtles that are big and like that seems cool and they're like don't have these that many predators. And so I think that there's like a similar thing trying to like, trying to have those examples in our mind seems powerful. And I guess in the human world, is it like, I guess like the, 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 the counter argument to this might be something where it's like, hey, we live in this world where um, we have like uh, many folks in America have like abundance and things in the western world and then so they don't have to like so there's like less competition in various ways and then what that means is like our tendency towards gluttony and addiction and and things like that and so i don't is there i don't know i'm kind of struggling to think of like what kind of environment would you imagine if you imagine a positive environment what does that look like for humans yeah like a positive environment that then when institutions try to compete with each other or when they're like competing or they're not trying to compete but they're collaborating that the environmental structure that like we have superstructure that we create is a positive one so it's the things that emerge are are like are more like three legged sloths or, or three toed sloths yeah well i'm sorry to throw this wrench in <laughs> but but i don't know that it's the structure uh, what I do know, um, there was a phase that I went through uh, of studying social network analysis. And so I was having these conversations with this amazing person, Valdis Krebs, who was a social network analysis um, early, early person. And we were talking about the development of Twitter and how exciting it was. And the change about um, follower count and followers and how that was shaping the environment and what I was understanding from him and from reading a bunch of game design is that you have to keep designing these systems to be just a little bit more complex than the thing that they're trying to cover. And so anytime you start designing the structure, the whatever, you're going to have some kind of response to it and it's going to keep pushing back and evolving. And so it just needs to be slightly better. And then, then I'm going to put it over here and go remember the habituation stuff. Right. As soon as you now have that new ice maker in your refrigerator, you habituate to the ice maker in the refrigerator. And now you can't imagine not having an ice maker in your refrigerator. And so I think that we have to continually stimulate ourselves to be changing the forms and exploring the variety rather than trying to get stuck on, well, this particular structure is going to work because humans will break it as soon as they get there. Yeah. They'll be like, the yeah. flaw in this one is... Yes, totally, totally. Yeah, and I agree with that, that. There's like a pseudo. One could call it an arms race. That would be the like maybe um, uh, competition framing on. You could also call it a um, co-evolutionary feedback loop or whatever. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think. Yeah, and I guess yeah. I, I, I cool, cool, cool. That that makes. And I guess maybe one one other bonus thing I'd say to you on this is I think the the um, or just curious for your thoughts on this is I think one of the you know I'm writing this book right now on what information wants and a crucial part of that book is. Um, well, hey, I'm excited to send it to you because you'll be able to kind of, when I make these mappings from genes to memes, you'll be able to be like, this, this is not correct or whatever. So I think that I'm excited for your feedback there. Um, I yeah. think that, um, uh, but the, the idea is that genes kind of replicate into environmental niches, like, um, you know, birds in the sky and fish in the sea. And I think that in sloths into their very chill environment. Um, and then the question, and so, and then memes also replicate, when I think about mimetic environments, there are things like our brains and there's like um, feeds like Twitter feeds or books or stuff like that, that like then memes and ideas can then start to live in. And I think that um, again, yeah, with the example of like the outrage and like, uh, you know, outrage is the thing that's, that spreads, but we don't see the story of the mutual aid or whatever. And so I think that I guess when I think of environments, one of the, one of the things to note here is that like, it's like, you know, in the end we kind of blame the replicator for um the outcome which is like oh look at what happened here um all these people are so outragey and now we have maga or you know whatever and then and everybody's polarized and the left hates the right but um i think that in fact it wasn't the replica it wasn't maga's fault or whatever it was like the fact that we have this place in our brains a tendency towards group division and polarization and outrage and that the internet just like let that go on on full fire hose and so i think 
one of the answers I think that the book claims is that what we need to do a better job of is like environmental design or like the homes for memes to live in and to like change the homes for memes. What do you, uh, or the environment for memes? So it's kind of like, instead of a brutal environment, it's kind of creating a positive environment. Does that resonate or what do you think about that? Hmm. I like it. I like it. Um, for me, there's something about the mechanics uh, and the metrics, uh, which you could say are elements of the environment. And so are you able to reach millions of people? Is that what the filter is? And so if your memetics are little neighborhoods that are all interconnected and sometimes things spill over, it's going to have a different dynamic than you can now reach 2 million viewers if you're outraged enough. Um, and then, well, what are people searching for? Like what we drove the internet off of is advertising, which meant eyeballs, which meant finding the best ways. All the best money went to all the best ways to get eyeballs, to look at the page, <laughs> right? Um, and so what is the thing that we can we can put into the environment that's an antidote or a, um, a, a, a an additional feedback mechanism that helps with that um, in the environment. So um, what metric would allow us to see, though that's damaging? It's like we can't see our own body to see that the collective body is taking damage at the right times in which we could respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think that there's, and what I'm hearing there is like, part of it is like, part of the environment is the like network design. Uh, and part of the environment is also the, um, yeah, the metrics and the goals. And so, you know, this is obviously the shift from time spent to time well spent or whatever. And it's like, if we just slightly change some of these goals, then can we, yeah, that's kind of part of the technology that emerges and where the money flows and stuff is based off of, um, quote unquote, what we value, but what we value, it obviously gets like decoupled and turned into stuff just like eyeballs. What we value is eyeballs and consumerism. It's like, well, that's not exactly true. We do want everybody to have t-shirts and stuff, but like, and so I think, yeah, finding, thinking about the ways in which there are these like nested, um, going from what we actually want to then like how those get metricized and then optimized for that there's like, um, and that, that the thing that the memes end up like going into like Facebook as a kind of, uh, I don't know, yeah, Facebook as a technology turned into um, him optimized, not for the the thing over here of um, of human values, but rather the thing that it could optimize for, which was the um, the metric. Okay, okay, interesting, cool. I have um, something else yeah. that I want to offer you. Yes, yeah, yeah. Somebody else has this breakdown, but I super love it, which is the, the hands, the head, and the heart. And mm -hmm. so in, in the age of factory production, what companies wanted to control was people's hands. I didn't care what your head was doing. I didn't care what you loved. Just did your hands do the task. And so we had this whole phase of industrial production in which bodies and what bodies do mattered. And then we switched towards information in which it's much more about what, what are you thinking? And then corporations went towards how can I inspire you so that you're thinking about the company's problems while you're in the shower? right? It's not while you're sitting at the desk. It's while you're on the bus, right? Like I want to mental engagement. And, and I think metamodernism is claiming it's also the emotional space, right? Now we're moving into the heart. And so is, uh, and I'm going to mix up my people here and now point towards grief work and uh, the Kubler-Ross model of like, oh, anger is just one of these phases of grief. And is the system going to then go, oh, we also need to go through denial and we need to go through, um, mm -hmm. what are the other ones? There's acceptance, mm -hmm. depression, and the negotiation one. What's the word for the mm -hmm. negotiation one? Bargaining. I don't, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so are we, with our memes, going through a bargaining phase uh, are we starting to shift into that emotional awareness of, okay, I'm tired of being triggered. I'm now going to engage in memes that make fun of that and bargain my way to still be able to have this experience without having to be triggered into outrage. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So what I heard there is like, um, yeah, the hands, the head and the heart model. And that that's kind of like the production model where it's like factories, hands, 
um, the now head knowledge work, you know, um, and then you know, companies try to both do it nine to five, but also the like bonus time outside. And then, and now we're kind of as the head is being outsourced to AI or whatever computation and other things, then, then it's like, okay, this heart piece. And, and I, I, I get what you're saying. I think about the grief model, but how does the heart model, how does the heart relate here? It's, it's our company's going to start exploiting our hearts or like what's going to go on there? Totally. Totally. They're already trying to exploit our hearts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, are they creating an emotional experience? And do you tie that to your identity with the product? Mm-hmm. And so what you see now is lots more companies talking about what their identity is, what their social purpose is, rewriting their their mission statements so that the younger generations will aspire to do that because just making money is no longer attractive enough for people to want to work there. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, I agree with that. And that's all this work that's being done by networks and networks are functioning in large part off of emotional interactions together. Yeah. Yeah. There's both like the, you know, woke capitalism is like one side of that. And then the other side is like, yeah, the, um, these emotional networks, whether it's, you know, Black Lives Matter or MAGA or Me Too or whatever is like these like kind of new kind of network first things that are primarily based off like emotion and heart stuff in some ways. Do you think, but I guess, is there like a positive version? Because in theory, it's like, oh, we've gone from hands to head now to heart. And so, yes, we do get something like woke capitalism, but it's like, is, is the quote unquote answer to this, like that there's going to be something beyond heart or is the answer to this that we just need to know that it's okay that these, um, that there will be woke capitalism, but it's also cool to like check in with your own heart and like see where it's at or whatever. We're having to do a ton of emotional development. We've got people who have been in denial for a long time and, you know, trying to just stuff it. And so, of course, the first thing we get out of social media is outrage, because that's one of the first phases of grief work. And so once we become conscious, oh, we're collectively doing grief work individually and in groups. Oh, I don't need to be in that outrage stage anymore. The outrage stage is the anger stage, and I'm ready to be in a different stage. And so I'm looking for mimetic uh, exchanges that resonate with the phase that I'm in. So that's what I was trying to say about, I think there's a positive outcome here if we Mm. just see it as phases and emotional places that people are getting stuck in instead of it's the necessary outcome. Yeah, no, I like that. I think um, that's good. That's a a great phrase for people in general. It's like, hey, your behavior, current that specific behavior was bad. But like, this is just a part of like, you're like growing or whatever. And I think, yeah, I guess getting to the um, uh, bargaining, I guess a lot of people seem to be in the depression state in some ways where they're like, um, just like sad about the world and don't think anything positive is going to happen. And I guess like accepting the new status quo is where we want to get people to be, which is like, we're in this place all together where we have this network hive mind on the interwebs and like, um, let's try to do it right. So I guess that's hopefully um, where we get to. Maybe as a final way, we're getting into fully wrap mode here. And I guess maybe my first question for you is in, in wrap mode is, do you have a place if folks want to kind of um, learn more or kind of take this path that is a more um, participatory, like there's very clear ways to do a kind of um, Y Combinator style high, hyper growth startup. You like join YC, do whatever. How, if you were to recommend either readings or communities or networks or something, if folks want to take this more participatory path, how would they do that? Um, well, the lightest thing that you can do is see the Thrivability sketch. And so that's um, uh, way back on the SlideShare days. And it's 60 pages, pick any page, read a page, be inspired um, by lots of different people talking about their perspective on Thrivability. Um, so that's a very lightweight go explore. Um, I, of course, have two books, uh, Thrivability, Breaking Through to a World That Works, which you know scans 20-some years of innovation to say, here are some things that are really interesting, um, pointing towards Thrivability. I have Cultivating Flows, which is a branch off that tree that talks about social organisms and how to build organizations. Uh, and my current project is Thrivable Society. Dot org where I'm a- asking questions. Uh, we just did a session on distributed governance 
This month, we're going to start Thrivable You. This fall, we're doing one on group dynamics. So we take a topic and do an exploration together. Some people present content, but everybody's discussing uh, that content and um, providing their own wisdom with us. So those are places that I'm living. And you're also encouraged to invite me to other places, and then we can have conversations all over the place. Great. You know, that's great. I think that there's a, um, well, as a note on that, yeah, the, um, the, I think each of those, I'm looking at the starvable thrivability sketch. That's, that's cool. That's just, yeah, it's like, and there's just like a lot of openness, resilience. There's a lot of kind of cool things to kind of explore there. And I think that the, yeah, the thrivable society thing is cool. Thrivablesociety.org. And so it's like, yeah, if you want to be part of like a, you know, you know, peer led co-community thing about exploring these questions, it seems like a great place to start. And as, I guess as a final note for our listeners, um, if you want to, or actually Gene, before I say this, you know, for, well, actually while we're selling the shilling, um, uh, not shilling, right? shilling is a negative, I can call it shilling for myself. I don't want to call it shilling for others. Um, if you want to check out Gene on Twitter, um, she has a great Twitter and it's nurture girl. Um, and so just, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's the other place to find people's just like finding these. I like, also cool have Twitter Thrivable, notes. which I use as well. So nurture girl is full fire hose, Gene Russell. Nice. Thrivable is a little bit more selective if you want the more professional version. Nice. Okay. Great, great, great. That's great. Um, and I guess I want I ask maybe it actually, no, I think I feel, I think I feel, I feel good. I think there's, I mean, this has been a great, um, it's just, I, you, there's a lot of really cool little moves that I think I learned in this about how to kind of have a participatory stance. Um, and so that was helpful for me to learn. So thank you so much for that. And just excited to see where both thrivability goes. And then also I'd see like just trying to make these uh, less brutal environments where participatory and uh, cooperation thinking can uh, be part of society. So thank you so much for coming, Gene. And thank you listeners for listening. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.